0: blog talk radio
1: welcome to women who innovate on blog talk radio women who innovate bring creative ideas to support the efforts of women to push limits generate innovative solutions across industry segments and drive long-term positive changes in
2: gender parity this show will explore the trends of business innovation today by tapping into those global thought leaders who are disrupting the status quo Thank you for listening, and please join the conversation by calling in to 914 338 0796 because your ideas have never been more important.
1: Welcome to Women Who Innovate. This is Leah Carey and co host Renee Hopkins from the Business Innovation Factory. We have an extremely insightful interview for you today. I should have named this interview Chicken Soup for the Innovator's Soul. An interview- Deb Mills Gulfo. Deb is a significant figure in the world of innovation because of her objectivity and common sense approach to life, work, and personal life. Deb is a consummate networker and a highly networked innovator, an expert on leadership and strategic planning. We are going to take a look at women who innovate and learn from women the best. Deb Sinet, welcome. Thank you. So, that Renee and I have seen you for years. We actually have you on our YouTube channel. And I have to say that you're one of the most revered individuals in the world of innovation. And the story of your parents, I vow your early years is just heartwarming. Can you share with our listeners this story? And when did it dawn on you that you were indeed an innovator?
2: Um, thank you for that praise. I'm not sure I totally agree with it, but hey, (laughs) thanks. Um, I'll, I'll take it. So story of my, uh, my childhood, my parents, um, my mother, I'm first generation. Um, English was my mother's seventh or eighth language. I forget. She'd been raised in Europe and came over here to escape the Nazis and so um, the whole concept of American public education was a little foreign to her. And we lived in a suburb of New Jersey with commuter trains in and out of New York City. And so on Tuesdays, the mu- at that time, the museums in New York were free. So we didn't go to school Tuesday, my older sister and I. We went to New York every Tuesday, took the train in and went to the museums um, to, you know, see art and culture and that kind of stuff. We also went in a few nights a week to concerts, opera, ballet, that kind of thing. And then sometimes we didn't go to school on Fridays because um, my parents thought we needed time to be able to play. So the school system really was not keen on my parents. Um, At that time, there was, like, I guess now if you miss so many days of school, they can kick you out or sue the parents or something. They didn't have that at the time. (laughs) So they called my, the superintendent called my parents in and made a whole to do, you know, kids are out of school so long, yada, yada. And my father said something like, well, what's the average grade? And guy said, you know, a C and my mother said, well, what do our children get? And he said, A's and and daddy said something like, is there anything higher than an A? And he said, no, why? And he said, because if there was, then we should keep them out more because it's working. Um, so um, our view of education was that I was raised with is it was my parents responsibility to educate us we went to the public school because legally we had to Um, and you know you just explore things so whenever we asked a question it was always answered in a way that led to another question so um, I just got good or we were taught how to be good at asking questions and then that led me to come college I went to Brown where I mean, it's how Brown has been for I don't know how long the focus of the education there is to learn to ask great questions and one of the things that I did there was started the Cox Eye program with two other young women so we started a new concentration with the support of the deans and our profs it was actually the first entrepreneurial thing I did, but I didn't know it was entrepreneurial till maybe like 10 years ago because that's just kind of what you did at Brown. Um, then I go to Bell Labs. And, again, the focus is on asking great questions over and over because that's how you experiment, learn, apply, and iterate. And now I was actually getting paid to ask really good questions. Um, I got my patent because of asking good questions. And, I mean, that's just as I look back, I had a really blessed whole path there that's not typical. But um, that whole emphasis on asking great questions, trumping, ooh, I shouldn't use that word, um, <laughs> being more important than necessarily getting the right answers, because there's probably several, not one, has just kind of been a meme. Um, and to your point, when did I know I was an innovator? Probably not until like, 15 years ago or so, because up until then, I was, I didn't think what I was doing was innovative, because I was around a whole bunch of people that were doing the same thing, so it just seemed normal, and it was when I decided to go out on my own, and it was my husband who said, you know, given your expertise in innovation and strategy, and I was like, oh, well, okay,
1: but (laughs) I never really, oh,
2: you know. Well, I knew I, I knew I was strategy, but innovation was just normal to my whole experience from how I was raised through school to work that I never thought of it as being something special,
1: I guess. You know? Well, okay, so I'm, I'm going to add humility to your list of attributes as well. <laughs>
2: well I don't know if it's humility or just I was blessed to be around so many people that thought the same way that I didn't know it was a different thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I thought it was right. normal well, I mean, I still think there's a little humility there, just enough to make you open minded um, well yeah so I, think it's, so I think it's
2: important to be humble
0: <clears throat> yes i I totally agree with you so so when you're looking at the state of women in leadership positions today, when you see that there's less than than four percent in the C-suite Fortune 500. What what is what goes through your mind? What does that say to you?
2: That the C-suite in most of these companies is stupid. Um, <laughs> but no, but but it's not just because they're like a woman. I mean, I just oh, um, I'm always amazed that things that, and this is going to break your humility comment about me. Things that <laughs> I think are just common business sense seem like rocket science to people um so you know wouldn't it seem normal at that level of a company that you need diversity of thought race creed i mean just a whole bunch of diversity in order to keep growing your company um so but i guess it isn't really obvious and that's one of my phrases is since you know when did common sense become so uncommon um (laughs) I also wonder why, and here I'm, I'm not going to be politically correct. And I, I'm really struggling with this because I was out at Cisco, I don't know, sometime in the early spring, and they asked me to come out and talk to them about when, mentoring their women in tech. Um, but as I look at things, I don't understand why, if you're not getting to where you want and you're able to, you're not trapped economically, why don't you go out and do your own thing? So, you know, I can be like a bull in a china shop and I don't take no or no, you can't too easily. In fact, if you tell me I can't do something, then I'm going to do it. So I somewhat don't understand why women who have the ability to walk out and do their own thing or work somewhere else. Don't. Um, fear. Fear. Well, I guess fear, but, and I understand that if you're the main breadwinner, the key parent, you've got the benefits and all that, you don't have that freedom. But if you do, You know, if you're hitting your head on that glass ceiling and you don't see change, I think if enough women would say to heck with you guys and leave and do their own thing, you would start to see change. Now, is that the best way or the fast way? I don't know. I think it is a way. Um, And I think if C-suite started seeing they were losing really key talent, maybe they'd wake up.
0: Mm. I could
2: also be naive about that, but um, I just just think it's stupidity on the C-suite level. But it's not the only form well, of
0: stupidity. I have seen articles um, bemoaning the fact that so many women um, who left for what they stupidly call the mommy track um, didn't go back and have gone into business for themselves. And the articles I've seen have been like, oh, no, what are we going to do? We're losing our talent. So, so, I mean, it's possible that people are realizing that, but I don't think they would realize it in, in large enough numbers for quite some time. Right,
2: I think yeah, I think it's too long of a tail to, you know, there, it's like with kids and dogs, the distance between when you make the mistake and when you get punished for it has to be a lot closer in time than than it is.
1: That's, that's right. Oh, that's it. <laughs> so actually, this has been a great segue, uh, Renee, to my question for Deb, and this is something that women who innovate, when um, we were thinking about what is the purpose for creating this. Um, And I come from um, leadership, strategy, and of course Renee has deep roots in innovation. Because there is a lack of women in leadership, I've been thinking that there must be a link between that lack and the lack of women in innovation. And I'm really having trouble connecting that link or making sense of, of my question, my premise. Can you help me make sense of, of linking the two and not linking the two? Oh, totally. No. Um,
2: I think it's part of the reason, but I don't think it's all of the reason. Um, and part of why I say that is there are a lot of men in leadership positions that aren't great innovators either. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I think some of it goes to that, That those that are in leadership positions don't recognize, support, and promote ideas and innovations that are coming from women. Um, And that could be because maybe women aren't pitching them, presenting them in a way they're used to. But I'll go back to Bell Labs and AT&T, and again, the caveat that this was an unusual world at the time. I think my bosses went way above and beyond in pushing my ideas up the ladders. Um, They taught me how to craft the message, how to create the slides. Okay, this was before PowerPoint. Um, Use (laughs) visuals, how to tailor the message um, to the hot buttons of the audience. So, you know, you're meeting with this VP. Here's what he's going to need. You're meeting with this VP. Here's what she's going to want to hear. And basically, they told me how to pitch before it was called pitching. Um, so they really made sure that when they gave me opportunities for high visibility, I aced it. And they were also of the school of, you know, as my boss, they were to give the credit, the credit and take the blame. Um, but they spent tons of time with me and my peers. It wasn't all just me, teaching me how to sell my ideas to get buy-in, um, I also think that women haven't been in what we would stereotypically call engineering jobs, like STEM jobs, and some, I like STEAM better than STEM, because without the A for art and design, you can make remotes like we have today that are horrible. Um, <laughs> but, but they've been in more like, say, marketing or on the business side. And I think there's a stereotypical view, albeit changing that innovation comes from the techie side, from science, technology, engineering, math stuff. And so some of it could be that since there weren't as many women there, um, that's why it wasn't viewed as innovation. So um, I think some of that's starting to change with the work that Biff and my friend Alex Osterwalder does on business model innovation, some of that's starting to change. But I think some of it is really just there haven't been as many women and those that have been there haven't been trained, mentored into how to pitch. You know,
0: I we are. I think that may be one of the skills that that women are lacking—the skills that they need to advance their careers and really be competitive. Um, because it's it's not it's not women in general. I mean, there's women. Um, you know, don't keep companies from being more profitable. And in, in some cases, they've made companies more profitable. But can you say more about the skills that women need uh, to advance their careers and to innovate? Um,
2: well, to one point on the pitching, I think it's something that, that hasn't been taught um, to men or women. And when we talk about pitching in today's world, most people think of it only like I'm an entrepreneur and I need to have a pitch for my startup not I need to have a pitch for my idea or a pitch for me, who I am. Um, I think, I don't know that women need any more skills. I think they just need confidence and either they need to, there's something Mm. to, what did my mother used to say? She said, if you want to play the part, you have to act the part. So there's Mm. something to be said for um, faking confidence to build confidence. Um, But I don't think it's a skill issue. If I look back at my career Um, so I was 20 years old, right out of Brown when I started at Bell Labs. And again, I go back to the hours and hours that my boss spent with me on how to pitch my idea, which in the process honed the idea. And so, you know, that constant questioning me on why I was doing this, why was it designed this way, et cetera, helps you hone that. Um, and I didn't know how that would be useful. So I think women just need, not just, women need to be more proactive about their careers and their ideas. And that's what I mean, building up the confidence. So, you know, when I was out in Silicon Valley in the spring, somebody, some woman came up to me and said she hadn't been promoted in eight years. And I looked at her and said, then why are you here? Um, And then, you know, okay, that's kind of tongue in cheek. But I asked her, if she ever presented her career plan to her boss, and she hadn't. And 34 years ago, when I was just a kid at Bell Labs, it was made clear to all of us that you owned your career. Your management was there to help you, guide you, advise you, but it was up to you. And I only had one job description in my whole career, and that was the one that I got hired in to do. So I think we, women and men, but women need to say, okay, where do I want to go and lay out a plan and go through that with their management. And part of that is, you know, I'll go back to only having had one job description. I would see stuff that either interested me or I thought there was a need for and start doing it and just kind of design my own job. Now you can say, yeah, you were in a Bell Labs and AT&T where you could get away with that. And that's also very true. But I don't see women kind of just taking it by the horns and saying, this is what I want to be. Help me get there. What do I need to do? Um, You know, that said, 34 years ago, so when I was at Brown, um, I don't remember there being, like, more men in my computer science classes than women. I just kind of – it wasn't a big deal, so I don't know that I noticed it. Half of my TAs were women. At Bell Labs, the class or group that I came in with, we were pretty equally divided up, and we were all tech that were coming in. Um, And so it's kind of surprising – that I look now and women are fighting for their positions and roles, and thirty four years ago it was a heck of a lot easier we've re- just regressed
0: unbelievably in that in that way Wow you know I, I think serious. you're absolutely right about that, and I think that regression the great regression has happened across the board i mean you, you were you, that's what makes you such a great <clears throat> mentor that you you've actually you know you experienced this, and you might call it luck, but i think it, I think it really to, you know, your, your own, you know, personality, that you understood that that was valuable. And also, it makes you an excellent mentor to young people, you know, who don't, have never heard that you could actually take this kind of a proactive approach.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think, thank you. Um, I think some of it is personality, because it's just kind of how I'm wired that, um, and how I was raised that, you know, you tell me no, I'm just going to say, well, heck no. It's a yes. <laughs> um and that's not always too typical.
1: You know, and because you're so confident, I mean when I'm I'm again inspired in real time, um, it's hard to imagine that you face any type of bias, but do you have any experiences where you that you can share where you actually experience um, some bias and you had to prove yourself?
2: You know, honestly, um, no. And that could be, I was oblivious to it. Um, I was very young. So there were certain things like, you know, I was 20. Um, and one of the first trade shows that we all went to, they served alcohol and I couldn't go in because I wasn't 21. Um, so I saw some age issues, but, but not, but that was more external. Um, you know, I look at the times, the very few times, amazingly, that I had to deal with political issues and power plays. And it was usually an issue of level because it was not just me, but my colleagues who were frequently male that were getting the same thing. So um, I never felt gender was an issue. And as I look back, I don't think it was, at least for me, because my peers who were males would get treated the same way I was yeah. by just yeah, a very few. Sense.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what do you do now in terms uh, of your career?
2: Oh, I like, I, uh, I try to sit on the dock in Maine as much as I can. Um, no, yeah, I think that should, that's my full-time career plan. Um, So I do a few things, and they make sense to me, and that's all that matters. I have my own consultancy in strategy and innovation for uh, medium to large size, privately held, not private equity held, but privately held businesses, trying to get them to understand that strategy is a verb, it's a living, breathing thing, it's not an annual process, so you're kind of always looking at the world and assessing and where you go, and and trying to look at it differently so that innovation is a core piece of your strategy, not like a tactic on there. Um, and that's the main crux of what I do. I'm a partner in an early stage venture capital firm. And we are, um, we've invested all the first round. We're doing some follow-on. And it was interesting. It was actually Whitney Johnson. We were out to dinner at this sushi place in Boston that we'll never forget. Um, and she said to me, you know, does it bother you that you're the only female um, partner in your VC firm? And I was like, I am? I, I mean, I really never noticed it. And I was like, oh, fuck, I guess not. And she said, do you ever feel biased? And I said, no. I said, you know, we have one partner who's a bit arrogant, but he's arrogant to all of us equally. <laughs> so um, again, I never took that. And given the fact that I guess I am the only female and one of the two youngest partners, you know, um, with a bunch of white guys. I've never felt any bias or anything. So that's a little side comment there. Um, The third thing I do is I'm on the advisory council for Brown School of Engineering, and I mentor, advise in a ton of programs on campus. I also lecture and I lead independent studies. And a few days every month during the academic year to do that. And that's really my brain candy. That's how I refresh and renew and learn intellectually because the kids are always challenging my orthodoxy. You know, there's stuff I now assume I shouldn't be assuming and they challenge that. And then oh. the kids, the kids can be a talent pipeline for my clients. So one of my students, well, several of them will do summer internships or work for my clients. And it's, um, it's pretty cool. Then I used to write for HBR I'm not really anymore, I just haven't felt like it. Um, and that's what I do, I'm just, I'm really blessed to have been able to design my own career and, and be able to have the flexibility and time and all that um, to be able to like go up to Brown to be a VC. And I didn't do that when the kids were little. Um, I didn't do that till the kids were a lot older because I wanted to be at home. But it's, I mean, I just view this as a gift. Granted, I've worked really hard to get here, but a lot of people work hard and they don't get to this stage. So um, I think I've got a pretty great situation, blessedly.
1: Oh, And you know, it, it sounds so great that, that you hear that contentment, accomplishment, and just peace and balance. I, I love that. So speaking of words, what are <laughs> your, Renee and I ask, what are your four innovation words?
2: Um, Not three or five, huh? So my four are, um, <laughs> see, I have to tell us that. Um, Life is I, thou. Uh, Martin Buber was a Jewish theologian philosopher, died in the mid-60s, and he wrote a lot of things. One, of this, one was this book called I, Thou. And in his references, it is, is it about I, two relationships. I, it, I being me, the person, so Deb, and it being I treat the world and people transactionally as a function, or is it I, thou, I being Deb, and thou being in his mind it was God, but also you can extend that to is it thou, your employees, the people that work for you, that work with you, your customers, how do you treat people? And I think um, as you look at that concept of I, thou, it focuses you on, hopefully, on the thou, because if you're focused on the I, you're going to have a pretty unhappy life, I think. I mean, it's fall-focused inward, you know, just as a mess. But if you focus on the thou, on the others, that's when you really work at creating solutions that matter to them in their world, and that's how you have
1: impact.
0: You know, I I had the chance to read that book when I was younger, and one of the things that I think you are... Absolutely embody that that you didn't mention is that the um, it's called I thou, instead of I U because Val is not a more formal way of of uh, referring to people but a more um, thoughtful way. You know, it, it, the focus oh, on Val yeah. makes you makes you um, hold other people more highly in your esteem perhaps than you might otherwise, and I think that personifies how you through the world. Oh wow! Thank you, Renee. That is true.
2: I forgot about that part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got to reread it. (laughs) I've got to get it. I'm going to get it. It's not an easy read.
0: Yeah, I was about to say the same thing, but I I think it's. um, But I think you're right. I think it's important. It's an important read. It has, like a lot of books um, that are a little harder to to deal with. They, they have a really big impact um, on so many things in your life. So mm-hmm. um, I just want to also mention that um, Deb has been a, a storyteller at, at the Business Innovation Factory's fifth um, summit. And in fact, he talked about um, love and your network, how to, how to handle those things in an IVAL world. So it's actually very related to what we've been talking about here. And you can find that video on the business innovation factory website. It was from BIF9. Um, and I, it's not that hard to find. If you just uh, search on Deb Schofield Business Innovation Network, you should come right up to it. But, so, Deb, how are the other ways listeners can find you?
2: Um, on Twitter, I am at dschofield, no H, just S-C-O. Um, LinkedIn, Deborah Mills Schofield, and my website and my blog. And the website's very complicated. It's mills schofield.com. It's my last name. You know, nothing fancy. So those are places you can find me. Or once a month, up
1: at Brown or (laughs) Beth. that's good that's I need right. to just yeah. come up and bunk with Renee and we can see that we have
0: kind of growth oh growth yeah innovation I would, that, that would be terrific it's that
1: tough. would be so terrific yeah, thank, thank you. you thank you so much for joining us we definitely want to
2: have you back and this broadcast will be on iTunes within a couple of hours so yeah, thank you thank you guys so much you're welcome for the pleasure bye bye